Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. In this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Shotyajit Das, a former investment banker, derivatives expert and author. Das's book, Traders, Guns and Money, published in 2006, remains one of the best books ever written about the world of high finance. It's been called a wickedly comic expose of the culture, games and pure deceptions played out every day in trading rooms around the world. In the podcast, Das and I discuss debt in detail, how to measure it, and why all financial markets are now at risk from excessive leverage, and why large currency devaluations may be the only way to escape them. Listen into the next 30 minutes for a fascinating discussion. Das, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Please introduce yourself to listeners. My name is Shottajit Das, but uh, everybody calls me Das because Shottajit is beyond Anglo-Saxon's linguistic flexibility. I started my life as a banker, regrettably, and I spent about 20 years plus in banking, and then I ended up working for what used to be TNT, which is now part of the Dutch Post Office or whoever has bought the Dutch Post Office. And since the middle 90s, I've consulted to people, which is basically to say that I've been unemployable for about 30 years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and for my sins, I've written a few books along the way. I used to write technical books on derivatives, which were never read, but were very good doorstops. And subsequently, I wrote a number of books, which were more general consumption, like Traders, Guns and Money, Extreme Money, and Banker of Consequence. You're being very modest there, because I've read your, I haven't read your technical books, although I see they're still, still for sale on Amazon at uh, for three-figure sums. But I've read your books on Traders, Guns and Money, Extreme Money, and they're very funny, witty, but also very detailed and uh, knowledgeable overview of the world of finance, what's gone wrong with it, and uh, what, what can be done to fix it. So, um, which brings me on to the question of debt, because you've recently written an article for the Financial Times saying that debt or, or leverage in the financial system is too high and we need to do something about it and it's going to lead us to more problems. Why do you think that particular topic is still top of the agenda? Well, I think it's just the quantum of debt. Uh, whichever way you cut the cake, you, we've ended up with debt about uh, three and a half times global GDP. And one of the most alarming things about that is most of that rise, particularly since 2007, 2008, has been in government debt, which now, if you actually look at it roughly, it's going to be around about the 130% of GDP, which is levels we've never seen outside of war. So these are very, very high. But what concerns me more is I don't have a phobia for debt, but I do have a concern about what that debt is used for. Now, if that debt is used for investment, for productive activity, fine, because it's to some extent self-liquidating because the revenue you generate from it would basically liquidate that debt. But the problem I see in the world is a lot of that debt is going towards consumption. And that's not only personal consumption. In the case of governments, it's to meet just regular outgoing. And this has become the real problem. And what also underlies that is a very simple issue, which is debt is a bit like heroin. So when you take your first hit, it's nice, but you just got to keep more and more uh, in your system to get the same high. So we've now become trapped in a world where we just basically keep pumping out more and more debt, 
to create this fake consumption, the fake investment. And essentially what has happened is if you look at it in terms of the marginal productivity of debt, to give you an example, in the 1950s in the US, every dollar of debt you incurred produced $1 of GDP. Today, that number is three to $5 of debt for every dollar of GDP. In China, in fact, it's much higher than that. It's probably closer to eight. So my problem is not the level of debt, it's the productivity of debt, what it's used for, and the fact that we've become addicted to using debt as a sort of panacea for everything. Now, you, you mentioned government debt. We, we had this uh, kind of um, incident, I don't know if that's the right word, in the UK a, a year or so ago where the, the, there was a change of prime minister, the new team came in, said they were going to to have tax cuts, uh, spending increases, the, the bond market, government bond market panicked, and there was this uh, dramatic uh, few days in the market where, where a lot of pension funds were insolvent uh, for for a, you know, for a couple of days until the market stabilised. The central bank intervened. Uh, you know how how um, how dangerous is this situation when it comes to um, government bond markets as a whole? Because they've become you know obviously yields have risen in the last couple of years. Uh, you know how unstable could they be? because they underpin everything in the in the financial system. Well, there's a couple of things about the government bond market. I think the problem is the trust moment, as I would, I would describe it, or the quasi moment uh, in the UK is a confluence of a number of factors, which is basically when you had abnormally low interest rates for a long period of time, pension funds embraced this rather bizarre thing of let's buy long dated bonds and to hedge the liability stream we have on the other side in terms of future pension payments, which in theory is absolutely fantastic. There's only one problem with that. They decided to leverage the position. And so basically they used derivatives to do that. And then what happened is when inflation started to kick in and the bond deals went up, they had to actually find cash for margin calls. And obviously a pension fund struggles to find suddenly excess cash out of, you know, uh, I suppose they were looking in the back of their couches trying to find a few pennies to put out. And that caused the problem, but it just shows how vulnerable the system is. And there's another thing that the actual UK one, not so much, but the US treasury market has had quite a few conniptions in the last probably four or five years. And part of that comes from, I think the fact that the amount of debt is very large. So the marginal buyer and the marginal seller becomes very important. And the marginal buyer for the last probably 15 years has been the central banks through their quantitative easing programs. So the whole market is dependent on them. And that creates two problems. One is when they try to actually step back from the market as they did with quantitative tightening to basically not buy, it disrupts the market, but there's another element to it. There's so much debt now locked up on central bank balance sheet that essentially neither can they actually reduce it, but more importantly, what they can actually uh, have done is reduce liquidity. And this has been going on since the 2007, 2008, when a number of primary dealers in the US treasury market retreated. So we have a whole confluence of factors on the back of the debt. So we can expect to see more instability going, going forward. Yes, and I think part of the instability is that we tend to focus on things like debt, but leverage is far more insidious in the system. And right. the leverage that we now have in the system is far, far more complex than just simple debt. And I think that's something that the regulators have consistently missed for the last 
15 years. Before we get onto the topic of leverage and how you know where it is and how to measure it, I'd like to ask you about interest rates because we've had this historically unprecedented period after the global financial crisis of 2008. Interest rates were cut to zero, in some cases, some markets to, into negative territory, and they stayed there for 12, 13, 14 years until we had this resurgence of inflation after the coronavirus pandemic. Um, and, and we've re recently seen quite a sharp rise in interest rates around the world, although not to historically high levels. There's, they've been a backup to what, what one might consider a kind of historical average. Uh, I have the sense that central banks are kind of holding their fingers in the air and wondering whether they've tightened enough, whether they can start cutting again. The markets have raced ahead in terms of anticipating rate cuts. Where do we stand? I mean, given that the high levels of debt you talked about earlier, getting interest rates right is, is seems to be crucially important. And, and what, what do you think about what the central banks have, have done? Well, if you remember correctly, uh, going back, about uh, 18 months, two years, they thought that inflation was transitory and it was all going to go away. But I think the major issue about interest rates is, you're absolutely correct, the low interest rates were an abnormal period. But the problem with low interest rates is you can't take them away. And that's what has happened because of the high levels of debt. And I think what we've seen over the last probably six months or so, which is which really started uh, or reached its zenith when Powell in December, the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell, sort of hinted that they were going to cut interest rates. Everybody sort of took off to the races. I mean, you look at the S&P 500, it's gone up 20% since that time, which is quite an extraordinary rise in a short period of time. But I think the markets are a little bit ahead of themselves. And the reason I say that is, number one, demand is still very, very strong because employment has held up very well, wages are still going up, and there's still pandemic savings that are there because the central bank has completely misunderstood how much pandemic savings they were. So that's still there, and that demand is not going away, and it's being also fed, fed rather by massive amounts of government stimulus which is coming through. If you look, for instance, at the uh, uh, US and the Inflation Reduction Act, which is one of the most oxymoronic types of names for a, a piece of legislation I've seen because it's actually causing massive inflation because of the amount of subsidies pushing out into certain industries. And on top of that, demand is being underpinned by the global conflicts, such as those in the Ukraine and in Gaza, because ultimately war is very expensive and you have to buy a lot of kit. And this is non-recyclable kit. So basically, these missiles have to be replaced. So we've got a lot of demand. And on the supply side, we have some issues because of the deglobalization, the trade restrictions that people are putting on. So I think the supply side is not necessarily going to keep up with the demand to the extent that people are assuming. And we're going to get the short-term hiccups, like, for instance, in energy markets for different geopolitical reasons and also transport reasons, which we've seen with the Suez and with the uh, Panama Canal recently. So there's lots of things going on. And to come back to your fundamental point that I always go back to, which is, as you said, these interest rates aren't abnormally high and inflation is not at the target band of two to three percent. And my view is even if it gets back, let's say to the upper end of the branch, uh, sorry, of the band at three percent, savers are entitled to a real rate of return above that because they've been punished to death over the last 15 years. Yes. I see no reason why interest rates are suddenly going to collapse back to zero 
though a new generation of traders, which have never ever experienced anything like real rates, may find that a kind of a uh, uh, difficult thing to stomach. But I think the other thing which you've got to take into account is central banks don't want to be left with interest rates too low because in a crisis, they'll have to cut interest rates. And so they have to keep interest rates at a level. And I always work in a crisis, you've got to cut interest rates by give or take three to 4%. And if they're at 1%, that doesn't give you much room to actually move. So it would not surprise me to see interest rates persist at a higher level than the markets are actually anticipating. And given that everything is priced for perfection to lower interest rates, a shock later on in the year would not surprise me one iota. Right. Let's let's talk about, about leverage and, and where it is in the system. Now, I, just to start the conversation, I, I guess we should remember that after 2008, the regulators put a lot of new rules on banks and brought the the leverage of banks down by in, in, insisting on higher levels of capital, uh, new ways of calculating derivatives exposure. Uh, where is the leverage in the system as a whole? Well, obviously, the borrowings are still there. They're not going to go away anytime soon. But my problem is that quantum of debt is one part of the issue. Now, People started to amplify returns for a very good reason. Returns are very low. And what people forget is that when asset prices are very high, by definition, your future returns are low because you're paying so much for those future cash flows. So leverage has now gotten built into the system in terms of how investors operate. And the way they operate is very different from what central bankers assume, which is you go to the bank and borrow money or you just repo a few bonds. And I think there are several, and I identified in a piece that I did for the Financial Times, uh, five factors that I think central banks completely miss. The first is that there are multiple layers of debt. I'll give you a very simple example of that. Uh, the people in the tech industry, the entrepreneurs in the tech industry are very wealthy on paper. Though Mr. Musk, I notice, has lost 54 million because the Delaware court has overruled his salary uh, arrangements with the company. But leave that to one side, they don't have any cash. The problem is this is all on paper, so what do they do? So basically, they then borrow against the stock because you can't sell the stock because you would lose control of the company or perish the thought of selling anything because it might go up in value. So they borrow against that. So if you actually look at that, so you have these entrepreneurs with quite substantial borrowings against the paper value of something that might be valuable. And then they're using that, as Mr. Muff did, to invest in other things like SpaceX and Twitter. And then those companies themselves take on debt. So essentially, there is layers of debt. And also, uh, I've done some work for private uh, family offices, and it's quite interesting to look at the long chain. Because the individuals in the offices, they have some debt, and the family office may have some debt, and they invest in a fund which then has debt. The fund invests in another fund which has debt, which ultimately works its way to the end asset. And essentially, that end asset might be leveraged. And so essentially what is happening now is there's this multiple layers of debt in the system to the point that there is only one source of cash or earning somewhere down the chain, which has to meet multiple claims. It's like having a very large family and one income, and that creates its own problems. And so the margin mm. of safety that we assume in the system is not as great as people assume. 
but there's also complications within these chains. For instance, we observed when uh, the famous company Greensill, which uh, collapsed, the fintech company, which was being funded by, among other people, the Japanese investors in uh, through uh, Mayoshi-san and his complex of tech investment companies. But one of the most interesting things was the money that went into Greensill was then being used to actually fund other investments that are, the same parents have. So there's this very convoluted chain of leverage in the system. Now, allied to that is historically banks provided the leverage. Now, that may be a good thing, that may be a bad thing, but the most important thing is at least the banks were A, regulated, and B, there was some level of transparency. But the regulations that were put in place after 2007, 2008 had a perverse effect. You regulate banking system, so what happens to all that debt is it moves outside the banking system. And this is, of course, famously known as the shadow banking system, which now accounts for probably about 50% of global financial services assets now. But the problem here is, it's not the shadow banking system is A, rather outside the regulatory control or under control of different regulators in some cases, but there's differences in the control. But also they're a very polygot group of institutions. You have insurance companies, you have fund managers, you have family officers, you have high net worth individuals all through the world. and. So the problem here is, and I have observed this, unfortunately, in personal experience when I've had to help people try to sort some of the leverage issues out, is you might have a business which may be sound, may not be sound, but it has different layers of debt coming in from different people. The terms are different. The way the credits were done was different. And the way the rights are being allocated in terms of claims, priorities, and so forth is completely different. And that creates enormous problems. And for instance, at a very simple level, the only person who's going to win from this are lawyers, because trying to unravel all of this is very, very difficult. And for instance, when we have financial distress, we actually often assume a certain level of recovery against assets. I think people will find that the level of recovery against assets is completely different this time around. So that's let me just point. let me just stop you there for a second. So you've talked about the the very long chains of debt. Then you've talked about the fact that some of these debt uh, relationships are circular. So you've got people borrowing against themselves effectively, and then you're talking about the complexity of some of the structures. So you've got different, well, I guess lack of transparency about uh, who's owed what and who has priority over whom. Yes, absolutely. I'll give you a very, a very simple example. Evergrande finally filed for bankruptcy the other day. This is the Chinese but, property company. This is the Chinese property company. But uh, I noticed with some amusement, the press reporting missed some very essential facts. One of the essential facts that the company that was being put into liquidation was their Hong Kong subsidiary. And the important thing about the Hong Kong subsidiary, it was used as basically the window company for funding. So they issued the international bond. But those funds actually were on lent, in many cases, into China, into different mazes of companies, which basically own the underlying assets, which are in some cases completed buildings, in some cases half-completed buildings, in some cases just land. But the most interesting thing is if you are holding the international bonds, your claim is still against the Hong Kong company, who then have to claim against 
the actual underlying asset somewhere in China. And the most interesting thing, I'll bet you anything, most of those underlying assets have a different layer of debt. So I actually think the person holding those Evergrande bound is going to be in for a, a very long, complex battle to get any money, if they ever get any money, and their recovery levels are going to be very, very low. In your Financial Times article, you said that the usual disinfectants to financial sector shenanigans like these are disclo better disclosure and more capital. But you write in the article that you don't think that that's, that's going to work in this case. Well, for a start, uh, the information, uh, I always love regulators requesting information because it comes in a nice little form and you fill the form out. And I once asked a regulator what happens to the information. They said, we file it. And so that was very helpful. And I thought, well, A, the information is going to be out of date. And if you file it, well, what the hell? Who's going to actually ever look at this? And until something blows up, nobody ever looks at it. And capital is wonderful, but that requires you to understand what the risks are. And so to make sure that the amount of capital is correct for that. And that's not so easy under these circumstances. And remember, as far as the shadow banking system goes, there's a whole lot of stuff which bankers and all banking regulators can't get their hands around. And they're in different jurisdictions. And they don't put these shadow banking systems in easy, easy jurisdictions for people to have transparent views of them. So that's a huge problem. Right, right. Uh, so you talked about some of the, the structural problems involved in this sort of in, in, this, in these very high levels of leverage. What are the possible solutions then to to you know, to work our way out of this uh, complex well, and risky situation? Well, I think you're going to have to bring the overall level of debt down mm. in some uh, cases. And I think the real issue is you've got to tackle the problem of the root, which is the entire financial system is now completely reliant on speculation through uh, and basically we use that to generate activity and to generate a lot of paper wealth and effectively you have to sort of get away from leverage which is anathema to the modern world because without that growth would stop and the entire system would start to break down and i've always said that the mistake in 2007 2008 was not to recognize the core problem, which is we had too much debt and it was improperly structured and we couldn't rely on debt and have a sensible process of deleveraging. And I noticed several people wrote lovely articles about the beautiful deleveraging and so forth. And now we find ourselves with debt, which is significantly higher than in 2007, 2008. And at the same time, the revenues on the other side and the income on the other side hasn't grown commensurately. So we have to go back and say, well, we've got to get rid of a lot of this debt. But to be very honest, Paul, I think the chance of that happening in my lifetime, unless there's a massive collapse of the system, is highly unlikely because no politician is going to actually stand up in front of the electorates and say, growth is going to be low, you're going to have to pay higher taxes, and everything will have to sort of go back to what it was 20 years ago. That's not going to win anybody an election. Yes, I was about to say that. I mean, the only way that this is going to happen is, is it through some kind of chaotic... Uh deleveraging, effectively a, a crash, right? Well, yes and no. I mean, there are a few ways in which you can reduce debt. One is if there's income, which there isn't. Strong economic growth is the other. But I think people forget that there are a couple of other ways to do it, which is inflation and currency devaluation. Everybody has been telling me <laughs> for the last two years inflation is bad. I'm saying, well, actually, if you think about it, the central banks have been trying to create inflation since 2007, 2008. 
It mm. just didn't happen with the money printing because of excess capacity on the other side. But now it's happening because of some structural factors. Now, if you were a central banker, you'd be talking out of both sides of your mouth. On one side, you're saying inflation is terrible. On the other side, you're saying, thank God for inflation, because that's the only way we can actually reduce debt. And you can see an object lesson of that playing out in Japan, which is one of the most indebted countries in the world. And essentially, they now have the first sort of inflationary pulse, if you like, in Japan for the better part of 30 years plus. And essentially, they now find themselves trapped. They can't put out their interest rates because there's just too much debt. And essentially, what they're doing is letting the currency go. And the currency, don't forget, has devalued in Japan by about 50%. And basically, if you're a saver in Japan or holding Japanese assets, you know, inflation might be 2 or 3% and you're getting 0%. So you're losing roughly 3% of the value of your savings every year. And that's the only way you can actually bring it down. But obviously, that has enormous societal implications, because the only other example that I can think of, of how that actually occurred, was in the 1920s in Weimar, Germany. And that didn't end particularly well, if I remember correctly. Yes. I mean, so Japan is, a, you're saying, is a test case, because they went into this, uh, they followed this policy of cutting rates to zero to try and stimulate the economy before everybody else. They did it as far back as the turn of the millennium, uh, sorry, as far back as the early 1990s. Uh, and yes, so we're 15 right. years ahead of everybody else in doing this. And so the end game for them has, is, is finally money printing effectively and, and higher inflation. Yes. And, and to some extent, uh, there's a lot of discussion about Jap Japanification. And I think the debate's all wrong because Japan is not like the rest of the world. And there are certain unique things about Japan which uh, have affected the actual trajectory. But I think the real lesson I take out of it is low interest rates and printing money does not solve fundamental problems in your economy. And it can cover over those things for a period of time, but it can't solve them. And so what happens at the end is if you keep going down the path, you end up with a heavily indebted government, dysfunctional financial markets, dysfunctional politics, and you end up with basically either having to put up interest rates, which brings the whole pack of cards down, or you let inflation run higher than your rates and you devalue the currency. The problem with the rest of the world is Japan in many ways is doing it very cleverly. They're first. So they actually can do it a little more easily than anybody else because they're devaluing against other currencies. But if the rest of the world experiences the same problem, not everybody can have a lower currency. So it becomes much, much more difficult to do. And I think that's the challenge which central bankers and uh, treasury officials have to grapple with, though I see no signs that they're going to grapple with this. They uh, essentially have decided that, um, uh, that the policy they're going to take is Ninto, which is not in my term of office. Right. But the, and the implications for investors presumably are to hold on to real assets rather than government bonds or bonds of any type. Well, I think the fundamental thing here is that money when you boil it down to its simple essence, is nothing more than a claim on real asset. Because it's the real asset that produced the income, the growth, and everything else. So why would you now hold paper assets, which are going to be devalued through a whole bunch of factors, including some of the things we're talking about, rather than holding the real assets? And if you actually watch what the sovereign wealth funds are doing around the world, and to some extent what China is doing, 
is they're trying to switch away from financial assets into real assets. Now, some of those assets, are, yeah, you sort of have to scratch your head and think, what, what is the point of this asset? But essentially, and I was thinking of things like Newcastle United Football Club, I'm not quite sure that is actually the type of assets you should be looking at. But China is an object lesson. They're buying up resources around the world. They're buying up technologies. They're investing in infrastructure, which will prove hopefully valuable to them. Yeah. And that and the same, and you can watch the Petro states. They're all starting to do the same thing. And that's basically, I think, an object lesson for investors more widely. Right, right. And 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 looking back over your career, you've spent thirty years. Uh, oh my God, right, I'm up to nearly right. fifty. Oh my goodness, I've you don't look that you don't look at that doesn't look possible. Yeah, I must say, but no, uh, no, no, I can I'm see 66. you on the Zoom call. I'm sixty six, and I started at the age of uh, eighteen. So I've spent forty eight years doing this. Well, what a fool I've been. <laughs> but I mean, I wanted to say that the, the the financial engineering you've been writing about, so you know, in such an interesting way for for the last uh, couple of decades, you think eventually will be replaced by real engineering again at some point. Well, I think it's inevitable. Uh, uh, you can't create real wealth from financial engineering. You can reallocate wealth. And as I've always said, the, the first and most important lesson I learned in financial markets was no real profit and loss occurs because all you're doing is every profit you make, somebody else has lost. But you just want to make sure you're on the profit side rather than the loss side of that equation. Yes. And uh, I think that's the truth. And look, finance plays an essential lubrication function in the economy in terms of providing capital for investments and so forth. And really, we have to go back to a point where you have a simple system for savings, then lending those savings or investing those savings in productive, some risk management or insurance type functions and a payment function. Banking should go back to that. But I've been saying that for 20 years and I have seen <laughs> no signs of that. Yes, thank you very much for it's been a fascinating chat. It's been, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Nice to talk to you, Paul. Thanks for listening to this New Money Review podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it or share it on your podcast listening platform. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the right margin of our website, newmoneyreview.com. Listen in soon for our next episode.